So, good morning. And we're back in James chapter 2 this morning. And I'm going to be covering verses 20 through 26. This is kind of a section, and Ben started teaching this last week. He taught verses 14 through 19. And we'll pick up in 20 through 26 today and finish this very important passage in James. So, I'm going to start back in verse 14 and read through 26 because many of the things I'll say today tie back into what Ben taught last week. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So these are challenging words from James in many ways. James challenges us with something that should be critically important to us as we live out our Christian life. But it also challenges us a bit theologically, doesn't it? James is talking about justification by works. So we're going to talk today and understand that Paul on one side and James on the other stand hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, the same theology, because the Word of God is the same, right? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? So God inspired James to write this book. God inspired Paul to teach us what he taught about justification. And we're going to look in depth, I promise you, about all of these things and help us understand exactly what James is saying and why it's so important and what Paul taught us also. So just a few questions that we can think about as we dive into this lesson this morning. What is saving faith? Can you think of a verse? Anybody think of a verse that kind of how we're saved? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And saving faith is that which we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we shall be saved. Saving faith casts ourselves solely and completely 
on the work of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. That's saving faith. No trust in our own works, as Paul teaches so clearly. What does the saving faith, though, also of a new creation look like as we live out our lives in obedience to him? That's what James is going to teach us this morning, right? What should it look like, that saving faith? Else it's not saving faith, it's dead faith, as James will teach us this morning. And what are the works that we should walk in to please God? So the works that James is talking about, we'll come back to in just a moment, are good works. These are the things we do in service and love, grace. This is not just putting off the flesh and fighting sin. These are the good works we do that glorify God, cause people to praise him. So there's a very important foundational statement I want to make that we're all clear. and We understand this as we dive into this lesson. We are saved by the grace of God through faith alone without the merit of works. There is no component of works in our salvation as we get into salvation as we are saved there is absolutely no component of works involved in that faith itself is the gift of God through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that's what Ephesians 2 8 9 as Susan quoted says that faith itself is the gift of God God regenerates us we're dead in our sins no man is kind of half alive and saying Lord look at me down here I kind of want to be saved we're dead we're enemies of God right we're hostile God, by his grace, intervenes. Acts 16 is the beautiful, beautiful statement. Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened, she came to believe the message that Paul was preaching. That's what happens. God reaches down. Jalen, whose heart the Lord opened, right? As I can go through and name a lot of names. Here's Susan, whose heart the Lord opened, you know? That's how God works in our lives. He reaches down by grace, and he takes the initiative. Those who are regenerated believe. That's the good thing. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed you. When God does this work in our hearts, we follow him. We run to him in faith. So we believe, and those who believe follow Christ in obedience, love, and service because they are new creations. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're new creations in Christ. Now we follow Christ. Followers of Christ live to serve their Lord through love and good works. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? That is the essence. That is the critical thing of Christian life is that we will follow him. We must obey him. This, in fact, is the message of James. I want you to understand this. This is absolutely the message of James. So the message that we're gonna talk about in these verses 14 through 26 is really vital to a true and living faith that is going to live out the power of the gospel and loving obedience to God through good works. So it's, I think it's very important that we have to understand in these verses, 20 through 26, exactly what James is saying. We also have to make sure we understand what James is not saying. Because if we don't understand James's words on faith and works and justification, we're going to miss out on this critical exhortation, yea, verily command, uh, that we live out godly lives. But if we confuse James's words on the place of works and justifications, we can be let off into a legalism, or in fact, we can be let off into a religion based on works and merits, that is a false gospel, that is not the true Christian faith. And that, in fact, has happened, as you know, 
the Roman Catholic Church in the Council of Trent appropriated these words of James as justifying the addition of merits in salvation. And this is absolutely false. This is not what James is teaching. That's why we have to understand this critical message. So we, we've studied a lot in James already. James has clearly taught us that salvation comes as a gracious gift from our Heavenly Father. Look back at James 1.16. Actually, 1.18, I'm sorry. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creations. James is teaching even there that salvation is by the sovereign, gracious work of God reaching out and intervening into our lives, and he's bringing us forth as new creations. So James clearly believes this. He clearly teaches this. James 2.1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So James is symmetric. He's eye to eye with Paul on this in terms of how we get into faith, that it's the work of sovereign work of God and it's in our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is this question that gets raised about this apparent contradiction between the teachings of James and Paul on the place of works, faith, and justification, and how both men will use Abraham as their example. So it's, I want to, I'm spending a little bit of time on this this morning because I think before we dive into the text, it's, it's very helpful that we all understand exactly this issue between the teachings of the scripture and how they all in God's perfect harmony and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit mesh together. So if we're going to understand what a man is teaching, we have to kind of understand what question he's answering or what situation he's dealing with. So if we look back at the last part of James chapter 1 and James chapter 2, what was the theme, what was the message, what was James dealing with because these are the verses that lead up to the passages that were the verses we're studying this morning. Maybe I could point you to some key verses. James 1.22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not mere, merely hearers who delude themselves. That's kind of a key verse, isn't it? So what is James dealing with there? A hearer of the word, right? You're sitting there listening, right? A hearer of the word, but you're not a what? A doer of the word, right. So James is going to teach us, tell us right off the bat, this is kind of key to what he's just expounding in this passage in James chapter 2. Hearers, people who may have, oh, we know all the theology, but we've got a dead orthodoxy. We are not, in fact, doers of the word. We're not living it out in our lives. We're not, we're not doing these good works before men, letting our light shine that they may give glory to God in heaven, right? How about James, and this is the passage Drew taught, James 1, 27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So the two words there, true religion, right? True religion, how it lives itself out um, in our lives. So this is what James is dealing with, isn't it? This is what James is dealing with in his book and in these verses leading up to this passage that we're teaching this morning. So <clears throat> if we think about 
getting into salvation, that is how we're saved, and then what happens after that, sanctification, what is James dealing with? Which of those is he dealing with? Sanctification, right. He's not dealing with how we get saved, how we get into Christ. He's dealing with what we do after we're in Christ, after we're in union with Christ. That's what James is teaching us in these verses. So let's look a little bit about Paul and help us understand. Let's, Galatians 2.16, we just spent some wonderful months in Galatians. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And then Romans 3.28. We could read many verses, but these are some of the key verses from Paul. Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. I'll start in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So if we think about getting into salvation, what is the relationship of works to becoming a believer? Does it have anything to do? Does it have anything to do with us becoming Christians, getting into salvation with Jesus Christ? No, not, not at all. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 again, as Paul taught us. So let's come back. When Paul is talking about justification and works, let's come back to those two things in the order of salvation, how we get into Christ and are saved, and then what do we do once we get out of, or once we are saved and we're living out our Christian life? What is Paul dealing with? Which of those two? Box A, box B, <laughs> right? How we get into Christ, that's right. That's what Paul is dealing with in his letters. Therefore, Paul and James are together on this. They're just teaching different aspects of of justification and works and faith. James has a critical part to teach us about faith and works. So let's look at one more passage, Romans 4. I'm going to read this to you because this is how Paul, also this is just very symmetric with what we've been saying. Read this about how Paul uses Abraham as his illustration for justification, and then James will use Abraham as well. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6, right? That's Genesis 15. Remember this. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. We'll stop there. So what Paul is saying pulling this illustration of the life of Abraham. And why would everybody point back to Abraham? What's the big importance of Abraham? Who is Abraham? Why is he? He's the father, right? As, as James will say, 
our father Abraham. He is the father of the nation. God brought the nation and thank the Lord he brought us. He included all the nations. You know, he would be a, a father of many, na- of many nations. But uh, he is the father that they all look back to. He's the progenitor of it all, right? And, and so Paul can look back and say, look, Abraham believed. And was Abraham circumcised at that point in, in Genesis 15? No, he was not even circumcised. That's Paul makes that big point too. Abraham hadn't, he hadn't done any works. He was not yet circumcised. He just believed. And God reckoned it, that is, accounted it to him as righteousness. And you know what? That's what God does with us. He looks at the work of Jesus Christ, the perfect man who died on the cross. His works were perfect. He accounts his righteousness to us. He imputes it. He puts it in our bank account, all of his perfect righteousness, and we receive it through that instrument of faith, just believing. We receive it through that instrument. So this is how Paul uses Abraham, how they're saved, right? And James is going to use Abraham, though, in a different way. He's going to look at Abraham after Genesis 15. In fact, he's about 30 years later. He's going to look at Abraham in Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, and how Abraham lived out his obedience and trusting faith in the goodness of God. He could take his son Isaac to sacrifice him. So this is a great quote. I really like this. The entire Bible speaks with one voice. That is, Scripture can never contradict itself. The whole of Scripture is one seamless tapestry of truth. Isn't that beautiful? It's one seamless tapestry of truth. And we know that because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. People didn't just sit down and write these things. The Holy Spirit moved men. He guided men. The word of God is true and faithful and always symmetric and seamless. Into which each thread of doctrine is perfectly woven, making one statement of truth. The Bible presents one plan of salvation, so we know that James and Paul cannot contradict themselves. This is from a little book we have. We actually have a few back in the bookstore called Root and Fruit by Joel Beakey and Steve Lawson. And they're actually talking about this passage that we're studying this morning. So... I'm not trying to just plug the bookstore, but we have a few of those back there if you want it and want to read it. So let's dive into the passage. Let's now dive into James 2, 20 through 26. So I I wanted to do this to set what I think are the important a priori foundational issues that we have to understand as we dive into this text. I think it helps us understand. So James starts out back with this diatribe that that Ben talked about last week. It's as though James has this man standing in, in before him, this man he's created, but it's, he's probably not just created it. James is a, is a pastor, right? We always say he was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, right? That's what we, well, we learned that in Bible college. And so, but James knows, he's seen these arguments, he's dealt with these arguments, he's heard it time and time again, no doubt, from many people. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. This is an interesting word that he uses for foolish. It means just empty. Just, it's not a standard word that's translated foolish, but it's appropriately to translate it foolish. He's just an empty person without understanding. What book of the Old Testament does that make you think about when we say the foolish person? Yeah, the Proverbs, that's right, the Proverbs. And all that we learn about the foolish person in the Proverbs. It's kind of characterized by this person 
standing for James in James's mind as he writes. This person who maybe doesn't fear God, who doesn't honor God, who lives out a careless, reckless life, not living the precepts that God has taught us. But James has this important phrase. He's used this three times between verse 217 and 226. It ought to tell us that this is really the message that James is trying to get across. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. That's verse 17. Then in this verse, faith without works is useless. And then he's going to close the picture frame, 226. He's going to say, faith without works is dead. And Ben said this so well last week, it's just necrotic. It's just a corpse rotting in the casket. That's all it is. It's just dead. So James really has kind of told us the message of this verse, that if you have faith without works, it's not true saving faith. That faith and works in the true believer where there is saving faith that we talked about earlier, those two things are inseparable. Works must accomplish, accompany a profession of faith. There's one example I can think about from the scriptures where maybe that wasn't true. Anybody think about the thief on the cross? <laughs> he didn't have time. He didn't have time to go and serve the widows, right? But the Lord said, you'll be with me in paradise this day. But unless you're the thief on the cross and the Lord has promised you, you'll be in paradise with him this day, works must accomplish your profession of faith, right? So without works, no one can claim to have true faith. And this was Jesus' message often to the Pharisees, wasn't it? This is how he confronted the Pharisees, that they're just, they're just a brood of vipers. This passage I have listed here, we can, we can read this passage, Matthew 12, 33. This is worth looking at. The Pharisees claimed to have all the orthodoxy, didn't they? They claimed to know all of the Torah. They claimed to know the law of God. But Jesus said, you're dead in your heart again and again. There are no works that come out of your lives that prove that you're truly believers and followers of God. Matthew 12, 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. That is the believer, think of that, the Christian. That's the illustration, the believer and follower of Christ. You have the good treasure of the Holy Spirit living in your life. You bring forth good things, good fruit out of your life, therefore. And the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. So even Jesus uses that word justified in that very sense that James is about to use it. I, we were, some of the men in our small group were talking about this the other day at breakfast, what it would have been like to grow up with Jesus Christ as your brother. James heard this again and again. We see so much in the book of James, just the words of Jesus Christ flow through James because he heard this, but he heard the Lord teach this so many times um, that without works, without these works, 
you cannot be justified. And in that sense, justified means that your faith cannot be verified to be real. It cannot be proven to be real. It cannot be proven to be saving true faith. So now James is going to look at the example of Abraham. Now we're going to come to James's use of Abraham. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Let's turn over to Genesis 22 and let's look at this passage for a moment. There is much we can glean out of this passage that helps us understand exactly what James is teaching us. So let's go back and think about the background of Genesis 22, right? So Paul was talking in Romans 4 about Genesis 15 when Abraham believed God. God promised him he would be a father of a great nation. Abraham believed God and on the basis of his trust in God, it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now, how much longer after Genesis 15 is Genesis 22? And what has happened in that interval between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22? It's a long time, right? It may be 30 years or more. And what momentous event has happened in that interval since Genesis 15? Sorry? The birth of Isaac. That's right. And who is Isaac? What is the significance of Isaac? Yeah, he's the promise. In fact, he's the one God said through him, through his son Isaac, would come the nations, would come the promise. Um, and you know what happened with, with Sarah and Abraham? They didn't see it happening and they tried to do it in the flesh and the result was Ishmael, which was a disaster, right? And we pay the, the, you know, the consequences of that conflict are going on this day, right? But the promised son was Isaac. So everything rested in Isaac. This was, this was the promised son, right? So what did God tell Abraham to do? Genesis 22.1. Imagine the joy that they had raising this young lad, all the promises in him, and then God comes to Abraham. He'd come to Abraham before, hadn't he? Many times. He came to Abraham and called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, right? Genesis 22.1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. You see the obedience of Abraham? You just, that's just Abraham's heart as he responds to God. God calls and he says, here I am, here I am, Lord. But Abraham probably did not expect to hear these words from the Lord, right? And he said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go into the land of Moriah, and offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So, how can you bear that news? How can you bear that news that this is what God has promised, that God has promised that it's all gonna come through Isaac, he's given us Isaac, he's given us this joy, and now God says, I've gotta go up and kill him. I've gotta go up and put him on an altar, drive a knife through his heart, and burn him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. So what did Abraham do? How would we have responded? Abraham responded in faith, right? So we know this. Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place. I won't continue to read all of this, but you know, Abraham took the wood, everything for the burnt offering, and 
Isaac says, where's the ram? And what does Abraham respond? The Lord will provide, right? Abraham, I think, walked through this, no doubt, and it must have been incredibly hard for him to do this, but he walked in faith with God, and he walked in obedience to God. God had told him to do this, the most difficult thing he could ever imagine, God told him to do it. And what happened? What happened? He raised the knife, he bound Isaac to the altar, he was ready to sacrifice him, and he had raised the knife in his hand, and at that moment, Isaac, we know, was dead. In Abraham's mind, he was dead. He was going to kill Isaac. He was going to sacrifice Isaac. And what happened? What happened? Yeah, the angel, the angel came. But up until the last microsecond before he plunged that dagger in, he was going to obey God to the uttermost, right? How could he do this? It's his faith in God. It's his trust in God. It's his trust in the goodness of God. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us, right? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Those are poignant words, the only begotten son. Think about that. And it was he to whom it was said, and Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So Abraham throughout all of this trusted unquestionably, maybe he did have some Doubts in his mind, but he trusted. He got on that donkey, he went to Moriah, and he did everything God told him. And by faith, he did these things. By faith, he worked. You see, that's kind of the point James is making to us. Because of Abraham's absolute faith in God, because of Genesis 15, 6, where he believed in God and he knew God and God accounted him for righteousness, Abraham trusting in the goodness of God, his life showed those works, even to the most difficult thing that God could ever have asked him. And the, I love this verse, verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. God had already promised these things to him, but Abraham proved his faith. He proved his faith in God by this obedience. Don't let these words be lost on you. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, God provided for Isaac. Who else, though, gave their only son, their only begotten son, for whom there was no substitute? It was Christ. These are no doubt the words that are in Paul's mind in Romans 8.32. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? I know Paul must have had that in his mind, that God provided a ram for Isaac, but the ram was Christ for us, and he gave his only son. He put his own son on the cross to bear the wrath that we deserve. So this is Abraham's, uh, James's message to us through the life of Abraham. His faith and works were working together inseparably to complete his faith and prove that his faith was real. His, 
So inseparable were his faith and these acts of obedience that his works can be said to justify him. That is, declare him righteous before God. That is, they prove the reality and the veracity of his faith. And he had, as we said, been declared righteous before God 30 years earlier, but his works proved the, the depth and the reality of all of that that God had promised and all of that that Abraham had professed was proven. And therefore, that's why, as Jesus said, your, your, by your words you'll be justified, Abraham's works can justify him, can prove the reality of his faith. So James will go on now in verse 22. You see that faith, faith was working with his works and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. So this is a, a really interesting phrase that, that James uses. His faith was working with his works. And he uses the word literally synergism, that they were working together. His faith and his works were working together. His faith was propelling his works. James's faith was the background that allowed him to do everything he can do. And I can just stop and say, in the Christian life, God calls us to many acts of obedience, doesn't it? He calls missionaries to great acts of obedience, many times at risk to their lives, many times at great sacrifice, but they go out because they trust in the Lord. They trust in him who will provide, him who will care, him who will deliver. So that's the faith. That's how these things work together. And Abraham's faith, James says, were perfected by his works. And that word perfected probably means something like comes to full maturity. That is, Abraham's faith, and, and we see that in God's, God's approval of Abraham when he said, you've not withheld your own, only son. You know, and that approval God had is kind of that stamp of his maturity of Abraham's faith because Abraham was willing to obey the Lord to the point of sacrificing his son Isaac. It's kind of interesting. Um, Genesis, we could turn back a minute to Genesis 22:14. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there, but Genesis 22:14 in the, in the sacrifice of Isaac. So Abraham, in verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, and we translated it in English, Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide, Jehovah-Yireh. It really means in the Hebrew that the Lord sees. Um, but the point is, if the Lord sees, he provides. And the Lord sees and provides. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So in essence, Moses is kind of saying this became a proverb among them because of what happened with Abraham. But Abraham trusted that God sees. And when God sees us, he sees our needs, he provides. And that's the kind of faith, again, that Abraham had, that he could walk out. And this just proved the maturity of Abraham's faith, that he could come to that point that he knew God saw all of his needs. 
God also had seen all of history, the promises he had previously made to Abraham, the promises that Abraham knew God would fulfill. Abraham knew that God could see all of those. He does see all of those, and he provides. Whatever it meant, even if he had to resurrect Isaac from the dead, God would do that. Uh, but God would provide what was needed. So that gives us the courage as we as believers step out in works of faith, doesn't it? Knowing that the Lord provides, that he takes care of us, all that we have, all of our needs. So the goal of our faith is that we step out in this confident, trusting obedience in these works because they prove the reality of our faith and they help us to come to full maturity in our faith. The goal of our faith is that we in is that we know God in all of his fullness, enjoy him in all of his fullness, enjoy him as a God who sees and provides. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this, that, uh, let's turn over to John 17, 3 a moment. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So that is what God would have us to do, is to know him as the provider so now James comes also to verse 23. He says, not only, not only was James' faith perfected, came to maturity, but the scripture was fulfilled. So James started out with Genesis 22, talking about Abraham's obedience through Isaac, and now he's going to come back to Genesis 15, 6. So he is absolutely symmetric with Paul on this. He's going to come back and say, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So again, that promise in Genesis 15, 6 was made long before, probably 30 years before Abraham offered up Isaac. But Genesis 22 demonstrated that reality of the faith that Abraham expressed in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So this Hebrew word for believe that uh, is used in Genesis 15 is very interesting. It conveys this idea of considering something dependable and acting on it. Isn't that the essence of it? Abraham considered God's promise dependable and he acted on it. So it's those two things, the faith, the trust in God, and he acts on it in his works. That's the essence. So as a result of this, the scripture, that scripture was fulfilled. That's why James can say Genesis 15, 6 again was fulfilled because it was fulfilled ultimately when Abraham acts in this great, great obedience and offering Isaac on the altar. His faith comes to maturity. It fulfills that scripture. It's visible to everyone that Abraham is a true believer. He trusts in the God and resurrect the dead. So, that brings us to the challenging verse. So you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So this again is the point of James, is that faith and works are absolutely inseparable. Justify in this sense, we've seen it in James again and again, it proves the veracity of his underlying profession. It proves, his works proved everything that Abraham said, he believed. Everything that Abraham said, he lived out. And that's how God would have us to live our lives as Christians, right? Not a dead profession, 
Not a profession that has no works, but a profession that is vibrant and living because that proves, as Jesus again said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's our good works, the things we do in his name that prove that we are his, that also cause people to glorify him. So that's the sense where James can say that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's because the works prove the reality and the veracity of the profession we have made in Jesus Christ. So now James turns to a very interesting second illustration. James is going to go from who? The father of the nation, Abraham, the highest to what we might say the lowest. But it's not the lowest, is it? Who is his next illustration? Rahab the harlot, right. So what did Rahab do? Joshua 2, what was Rahab's act of obedience and act of faith? Yes, she hid the spies, that's right. Because they tell us, and we learn in in Joshua that Rahab had heard, right? They had heard what God was doing through the nation as they had come out of Egypt that God was destroying the cities. He was the true God, and she believed. She obviously had believed that he was the true God, the true God of the heavens. But she acted, didn't she? She acted on that faith. So, So Rahab hid the spies, and that was her work of obedience. I think it's kind of interesting that James chooses Rahab. Rahab was a woman, right? And she was a Gentile, right? So from the father of the nation to a woman who is a Gentile, the acts will be, there's no place in between where anybody can be missed, right? From the highest to what society would have considered the lowest, the harlot, the Gentile, right? Who nonetheless believed in God and at great cost, because she could have been killed. If she'd have been caught in this, she could have been executed uh, by the king or the governor or the leader of, of Jericho, right? She could have lost her life. So her act of obedience came at great risk and great potential cost to her. But her faith, through her faith, she was saved, right? So when Jericho was destroyed, what happened to, Je- to uh, Rahab and her family? Yeah, she was saved. They were saved from the destruction. So her faith, her acts of obedience saved her family. So in the same way, the same way again that Abraham's faith acted out, same way also that Rahab's faith acted out. And so now James is going to come to this conclusion again in verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Again, this is the third time he said this in nine verses. He gives us a very good clue what the message is. That is, think about the body and the spirit. What happens when we die, right? The spirit is separated from the body. So, you know, when we go to a funeral, when we see a body in a casket, that body is dead, right? There is absolutely no life whatsoever. It's a shell of a person. Now we know God is going to raise it up from the, from the dead someday and reunite uh, body and soul. But when we look at the body that's dead, it's just nothing there. There's no life in it, right? None whatsoever. So this is James's point. So you can't separate 
faith and works. If, if faith and works are separated, then the faith is just like that dead body, like that, as ben, ben said last week, that necrotic, dying, rotting body. It's not a true living faith. Again, it's illustrated by Abraham and Rahab. So let's look at a few applications and talk about this just for a moment. James has given us these examples from the lives of Abraham and Rahab of, of how faith should result in works of obedient service to God. So if, if we look back at James 1, 22 through 26, what works of service, of faith, has James exhorted us to do? These are works of service in the name of Christ. How should we act in the church of Jesus Christ? Because this is James's point, right? What are some of those things? How about looking back at 127, for example, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to what? Visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one unstained from the world. Right, very simple, practical acts that God would have us do in the church. What else? As we move into chapter 2, he was dealing with favoritism, wasn't he? What lesson did we learn there? How should we treat people who come into the North Lake body who may be rich or who may be poor? Equally, that's right, with love and grace, not with favoritism. We should reach out to everyone with love and grace, with no favoritism shown whatsoever. These are the practical kind of things. Think about just where you are in your life. What acts of service has the Lord given you in this church? You may not be a preacher or a teacher, or you may not lead a small group, but what, what, those are acts of service. But what, what acts of service has the Lord God given you, asked you to do in obedience to him that you might be able to do? What are some other acts that we can do in the church? Hospitality, that's right. And that's a big thing that James was just talking about in chapter 2. What else? How do you serve people? Nursery, that's right. We take people food when they're sick. We take people food when they've had a death in their family. We meet people, right? We get together with people and we comfort them. We have coffee with them. We encourage them. These are all acts in love, acts of service that God would have us to do. And they and what? They prove the reality of our faith. So I've talked about this verse. Jesus commanded us in Matthew 5, 16, to let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. So again, think about what good works God has given you to perform for his glory and as a witness to the world that you belong to him. Even outside the church, right? What works has God given you maybe where you work, in your workplace? What things can you do? What acts of service can you do in the world that show forth the reality of the faith that's within you, the light that lives in your heart? So, a question, number three, is faith in the Lord and obedience to his commands the driving force of your life such that you trust in him and move forward in service, even though circumstances seem impossible or 
Obedience and good works may come at great cost. That's back to the message of Abraham and Rahab, right? Their obedience came at potentially great cost. God may ask you to step out in service sometimes, and it may potentially cost you. It, it, it may cost us our lives someday. It cost the martyrs their lives when they stood up in a testimony and service before the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a practical thing you can do just to cultivate an attitude of service and works for God's glory. This summer would be a great time to read a biography of, of a great missionary because I can think of no greater inspiration to me in my life than reading the biographies of great servants of the Lord and particularly great missionaries because I see the sacrifice sometimes they laid down their lives literally in service of the Lord but they did it out of love for him so I've got a list here through gates of splendor these are the biographies of Jim Elliot how many of you know who Jim Elliot is yeah through Gates of Splendor and Shadow of the Almighty were written by his wife, Elizabeth Elliot. They're wonderful. They serve the Lord. In fact, after he was martyred by the Aka Indians to whom they were trying to reach out, she stayed. She stayed and helped lead them to Christ. What great acts of love and service. The autobiography of George Mueller, what a great servant of the Lord. What a great prayer warrior of the Lord. Adoniram Judson, anybody ever heard of Adoniram Judson? Yeah. The first missionary, one of the first missionaries to Burma. Uh, what great sacrifice he made to bring, take the word of God to Burma. Or William Carey, one of the first missionaries to India. So Judson and Carey were about the same time. Uh, and the biography by Pierce Carey is by um, his grandson. The biography of Judson, Edward Judson, is by his son, and then Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, right? So you could get most of these. We, don't, we have some of the biographies of Jim Elliott back in the bookstore, but to the others you can get on Amazon. Um, the other one would be Amy Carmichael, God's missionary. But I would just encourage you, read them with your kids. Put this in your kid's life, that this is what service to the Lord looks like in the lives of these great missionaries. So I hope this was helpful this morning. I hope we've been able to kind of work through the teaching of James and understand how James and Paul stand together talking about how we get into Christ and then how we live out our lives in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these exhortations through James. Oh Lord, may we not live a dead faith Oh God, may our faith be living and vibrant. Remind us again and again that you spared not your own son, but delivered him up for us. May that motivate us in love and service to you. God, may the world see our works. May they look at us and say, these people are different. These people follow Christ. God, we just pray that that would be the heartbeat of our lives. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us this time to study it and bless it in Christ's name, amen.